Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Ticket prices drop right before the game starts, and because GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, they're able to show you the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. With GameTime, you can buy your tickets in just two taps. That's like less than it took you to start this podcast. The GameTime app is simple, quick, and easy to navigate. Download the GameTime app in Google Play or the App Store and score last-minute deals on tickets up to 60% off. our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. It is Sunday night in Detroit. It was an uneventful game, but a very eventful 24 hours. I'm Max Boltman, Prashant Iyer. What you thinking about right now? I'm thinking about how all of the off-ice activities managed to hold my attention a lot more than the last two games. Um, I think that's been a lot more exciting to pay attention to than actually the on-ice product. And not always exciting in a good way, because right now the Red Wings, you know, probably not by the time this podcast comes out, but hopefully sometime soon after, we'll have to give some clarity on Anthony Mantha's status. He was injured early in Saturday's game against the New Jersey Devils, left the ice in the first period. It looked like it might be some kind of leg. The the word was lower body from the team. Uh, And if he misses any significant amount of time, that's that's irreplaceable for them. Yeah, I mean, you can make a... a solid argument that Mantha has kind of been the engine that drives the Red Wings, at least for this early part of the season. I mean, you know, I've made a compelling case multiple times to Max offline that I think Mantha has probably been one of the three best wingers in the NHL to this point, Um, maybe behind just Dreisaitl and and Marchand, really, Um, because outside of that, I think he's been absolutely fantastic. And so taking a guy like that, out of the lineup. Um, you know, I had the privilege of watching on the Canes broadcast, given that I live in North Carolina, so I was blacked out from Fox Sports Detroit. And honestly, John Forslund and Trip Tracy, the Canes broadcasters, were going on and on and on about how important Mantha is to the Red Wings lineup. It's clear that he's made a national impact. And so, you know, if he's out for any extended period of time, it's going to be, it's going to be brutal. I don't know if you can call it a privilege to not be watching Ken and Mickey. I really don't know if you can call it that. You know, I was just trying to be nice about it because, you know, generally <laughs> I'll always get Ken and Mickey and I'll turn in on a NHL Game Center. But unfortunately, I was blacked out tonight and had to watch on the uh, Fox Sports South. But the privilege is that unlike a lot of other announcers kind of across the NHL, I actually do enjoy John and Tripp um, listening to them a fair bit because I think they're great announcers. And that's why Forslund gets a lot of national uh, uh, gigs. Yeah, no, I've heard great things about them. I was just giving you a little bit of crap. It, it's <laughs> it's definitely a fact, though, that, you know, Mantha's profile is growing, and, you know, there's good reason for it. I, I think, uh, you know, we, we've talked at length about the strides that he's made, but he's really one of those rare wingers who makes a, a noticeable impact in just about every area of the game. You go through the evolving wild, regularized, adjusted, plus, minus categories. He's a standard deviation above average in all of them. There's just so few players in the entire league like that. And for the Red Wings to have one was such a promising development for them for this season. Uh, and, you know, don't want to be too doom and gloom yet. Don't want to speculate too much. And, you know, certainly I'm, I'm not going to do that. But really, even if he's missing two, three weeks, it it is a huge problem for them. And if he's missing any longer, then you start to really worry about what it's going to mean for him and his season. Because when he missed some time last year, I don't think he got it back immediately. I think he actually had a a better season last year than maybe we even realized at the time. And that is in part due to the fact that coming back from injury seemed to take him a little bit longer to get back into the swing. And that's kind of where he finished, was was in a really strong place that he carried into this year. Yeah, I mean, you you flash back to a season last year, and you it's hard to realize, or you're, you don't initially realize that the guy missed 15 games and came, you know, just a couple of goals away from 30 on the season last year. And so this year had really just been an extension of, of last season where he was starting to find the game, starting to find the consistency that everyone really was looking for from him. And then, 
you know, you have another injury, and unfortunately that's been something that's, uh, you know, plagued him throughout his career between, you know, breaking his leg as soon as he got to Grand Rapids to now breaking his hand twice, and then hopefully, again, not trying to speculate at all here, hopefully this isn't a serious injury that keeps him out for a while. Hopefully it's just, you know, a minor thing that he's only out for one to two weeks. But again, you know, to your point, Max, uh, that's one to two weeks without the Wings having their best arguably their best player on the season and that's another one to two weeks for Mantha to try and find his speed uh, after he comes back I mean tonight I think in the game against Carolina you already saw the impact uh, of missing Mantha on what that does to the Wings offense uh, you know using the evolving hockey expected goals model which again talks about the quality of chances generated and basically you know if you get an expected goal of one you would theoretically expect the team to come close to one goal scored um so the you know the league average tends to be around two goals at five on five uh the wings were at 0.9 for the game tonight and that was after having 0.6 in the first period and so there was just nothing happening on the ice and this is consistent with what happened in new jersey where the wings were at 1.8 and kind of collapsed from there and in columbus are at 1.7 although they did have Mantha for that game. And so, you know, you're really going to see the the Wings' issues on offense highlighted without him in the lineup. Yeah, he did see a team doctor Sunday night after the game. Jeff Blaschel, as he kind of put it, didn't have time during the game to talk to the team doctor. The team will be off tomorrow, so uh, hopefully get an update for you on Tuesday. That's about the earliest it could could be. I don't see it really leaking out much before then, but obviously that is the news that will have everyone on pins and needles between – between now and then, one of the flip sides of it is that it made way for a slightly unexpected call-up of Philip Sedina, who, you know, we weren't, you know, he's been playing better for sure, but we weren't totally sure when he was going to get his look in Detroit. I don't think this is a, a permanent deal, a permanent arrangement as of right now. This is, I think they're treating it kind of more day-to-day, but day one, especially in some pretty tough circumstances for him coming in to play his third game in three nights, especially considering that last night at, you know, until 4 a.m. he was on a bus on the way back from Milwaukee. So he played quite well in the first period and, and didn't look out of place in the second two. Yeah, I mean, you know, I had jokingly tweeted out, I think, the the night before that, you know, if Mantha is out for an extended period of time, it would it would certainly be fun to see Philip Zadina. I mean, he had been on quite the hot streak in Grand Rapids. He had had 12 points in his last 13 games, uh, not being able to record a point uh, last night or the night before in Milwaukee, um, which had snapped a 16 point streak. But he had honestly looked more and more comfortable, and so it just seemed uh, like a natural fit that if he had a top six injury for the Wings, that hey, call up a top six forward and. You know, with Svechnikov, um, again, it looks like kind of bouncing in and out of the lineup a little bit. Uh, and then Rasmussen, again, being out with uh, an injury, it seemed like Sedina would be the uh, ideal top six guy to call up. And so, hey, he got the call up. And, you know, like you said, I thought he was Detroit's kind of best forward for most of the uh, first half of the game. I think as the game wore on, you know, the fatigue caught up to him a little bit. This was his third consecutive game that he had played, and he had played four in the last five nights. You know, yeah, he's a 19, 20-year-old kid, but that does eventually catch up to you. And, you know, he wasn't put in the best of situations. Blaschel did say that he was going to get a chance with skilled line mates and power play time. Well, unfortunately, the Wings only got one power play, and it was at the very end of the game, and they weren't able to make much of it, and he didn't get a chance on that. Um, and then outside of that, he, he kind of had his line mates as Philpola and Darren Helm, which while Philpola is, again, a highly skilled offensive player, you know, it's not necessarily the most advantageous situation, whereas he could have potentially slotted on that top line uh, next to Dylan Larkin and, and Tyler Bertuzzi. But all that being said, I thought he had an excellent move in the first period. He, he walked Jacob Slavin and set up probably the wing's best scoring chance of the night um, on a pass to Valtteri Philpola. And then he had a couple of great uh, flashes of play. And I think one of the things that I really liked about his game was last year felt like he was chasing the game a lot. He was always trying to recover back to the right position. He was not where he needed to be and was having to chase that spot. But tonight I thought he looked very much where he was supposed to be. And as a result, you know, he got almost 15 minutes of ice time because of it. Well, you know, well beyond what I was expecting him to get. 
Yeah, I think 15 was on the high end of what I was expecting too. And, and like you said, the, the play to Philpola was a nice one. He had a kind of a, a pass that maybe didn't get as much. It didn't create as much, but I thought it was still really nice to Darren Helm. I think that was in the second period where he kind of got the puck and threw it to Helm. And uh, I think Helm was kind of locked up and couldn't do anything with it. But this is something that I think people should get used to seeing from Zadina. I know he's been billed as sniper, 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 sniper. He, he can make some really nice passes, and especially in Grand Rapids lately. A couple games ago, he had at least two passes on the same shift, both of which should have been assists. Uh, one of them was to Ryan Kuffner, who had a wide open net. Puck hit him in the tape, and, and Kuffner just couldn't quite handle it. Um, but, you know, two two passes on the same shift that were just beautiful setup plays. So uh, get used to that from Philip Zadina. I know, you know, he's, he's a shooter, and that's, you know, well warranted because he does have a really nice shot. Uh, but he's going to make some plays, too. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And Max, I got a question for you since you've watched a lot more of Grand Rapids than I have. You know, when we when we saw him in the prospect at prospect camp, and then when we saw him in the preseason, it really just seemed like he was forcing the play and almost forcing his shot to a certain degree because he was so snake bitten. He was trying to get that goal. It almost seemed like he was maybe shooting in scenarios that he needed to pass a little bit more or should think about passing a little bit more there do you feel like he's kind of figured out that balance a little bit more because I like you know to your point I thought he was very appropriate he knew when to press when to take a shot tonight and he knew when to set up those passes and and uh, kind of create space for himself I think he was passing like a, a pretty good amount at the prospect tourney too like I, I, he had plenty of assists I think he was maybe the tournament assist leader in Traverse City actually but but I do get your point that about the pressing and I, I think there were some plays I think he kind of went hunting a little bit in Traverse City and was like all right I'm gonna find my shot and and it just didn't work and, and I think what's worked for him in Grand Rapids goal scoring wise as a difference is he scored some dirty goals, and I, I don't know that that was something that a year ago Philip Zadina would have been doing is, you know, getting to the net, getting the ones that take a weird redirect, getting the ones where you bank it off the side of the goalie. Uh, those are the kind of goals he's kind of been scoring lately. He still obviously has the one-timer in his bag. He's used it. He's scored on it. All that stuff. But um, I think the, the difference in his production uh, is is more about he's getting to the right areas of the ice, he's competing all over the place, he's getting the puck back. And then, yeah, like the, all those things allow him to have the puck more and set up those plays. But but to your broader point, I do think he looks a whole lot more comfortable, a whole lot less frustrated than he did even as recently as September. Yeah, I mean, tonight was night and day. And again, I'm comparing a very small sample size of, yeah. you know, the the one game this season compared to his, his games last year where, again, he looked a lot out of place. He didn't really look comfortable. He didn't seem to understand the speed of the NHL. And tonight, I mean, you can make an argument he was Detroit's best forward, or at least, at the very least, one of their top three forwards. I mean, I thought his line with Philpola and, and Helm was Detroit's most productive line on the night. Um, you know, those three guys actually finished with a 5-on-5 five five, uh, Corsi four. And, again, this is just the quantity of shots attempted. Those guys finished at 57%. Um, on the night, nobody else, none of the other forwards were north of 50, save for Tyler Bertuzzi. And so, you know, I thought that was probably Detroit's best line, and I thought he had a large part in that, you know, with all of his great playmaking ability. And so I'm going to throw another question out at you. So we'll we'll start this by saying that Philip Zadina is exempt from the 2021 expansion draft. No matter what happens here, he is exempt because that had to be decided last year. So given that, you know, if he continues to play the way that he looked tonight and he looks like he belongs or at least is comfortable in the NHL, do you burn his entry-level contract? Yeah, I would. I mean, it's something that you and I have talked a lot about, you know, on this show and on Twitter a little bit. I, I think because the Red Wings for so long were a cap-strapped team that was looking to, to compete for Stanley Cups, the Red Wings fan base in particular has kind of internalized this idea of the entry-level salary is the the gift. That's, that's what you protect. And I think when you're a rebuilding team, you have to think about it from two ways. That's certainly one of them, and, and it, it may not be too long, you know, two, three years until the Red Wings have to think that way again. Certainly Toronto right now would be doing everything humanly possible to protect Philip Sedina's entry-level salary if, if he was on their team, right? But when you're the Red Wings – you just want to put yourself in the best long-term position. And you, you think about someone like Philip Zadina. If you think he's going to be as good 
as you know as when you drafted him, or maybe not even that good, but it, but as good as you know whatever you want him to be very good. Those guys get paid a lot of money, and you, you talk about someone like a David Posternock who who did burn a year fairly early and who did sign for a incredible number for Boston. And I'm not comparing Zadina to David Pasternak right now, but he's an example of this phenomenon where a team had a player come up and play relatively early, didn't prioritize the entry-level deal above everything, and now they have one of the very best hockey players in the world signed on a, four, a deal that has four more years at $6.66 million on it. That is the advantage, because if, if they were negotiating with Pasternak after last season instead of before last season, think about how much higher that deal would be. Same deal for Dylan Larkin. Red Wings bring Dylan Larkin up right out of college. He's in the NHL. Now, that's a little different because he was an NHL, you know, full season player. But I, I think that when, when you get into the nitty gritty, the Red Wings can position themselves well by getting some of their players on entry levels up now, using that year and getting them one year closer to negotiation. Would you rather negotiate at this moment with Philip Zadina when he's 21 or when he's 22? Or I guess after after the uh, age twenty two season or, or the age twenty three season, whatever whatever the numbers are, um, I think you, you want to do it earlier before he has a big breakout or, or if he if he's going to reach like a, if he's going to be a sixty point player, a fifty five point player. Uh, ideally, if you're the Red Wings, you want to get the negotiation done right before he has that first season at that level. Yeah, I think Max, you laid it out beautifully. And so for those who are relatively unfamiliar with how the entry level process works, I'll kind of lay it out here. So when a player goes to sign their very first contract, um, they are given an entry level contract and the number of years that contract is, is entirely dependent on their age when they're signing it. So for most of the draft prospects, if you're between the age of 18 and 21, your entry-level contract is automatically going to be three years. And so for those players that are 18 and 19 at the time of signing it, if those players do not play at least 10 games in that season, then that contract can be slid. And what that means is instead of kicking in that first year, now the first year of that contract wouldn't start until the next season. And so for an 18-year-old player, when they sign that entry-level contract, which is Philip Zadina, that contract can be slid two times. So last year, Zadina's contract was slid, so the first year of his entry-level contract still has not kicked in. Because he's still 19 this year, again, the Wings have the option of sliding that contract uh, a second time to where the first year of that deal wouldn't kick in until next year. And so as Max kind of laid out, you know, the beauty of it is if you're a cup-contending team, and you've got a potential elite talent on an entry level contract, which is usually, you know, $925,000. You want that player on that entry level contract for as long as you can keep them there so you can use the remaining cap money to go out and spend on a top four defenseman, a top six winger, and really round out your, you know, your team. And so a classic example of this is what Eiserman was doing in Tampa where he would keep Yanni Gord down, he would keep Matthew uh, Joseph down, uh, kept Anthony Sorelli down, did not try to burn those years early. He was sliding those contracts so that he can go out and get Ryan McDonough. He can go out and do something else for Tampa to help that roster load up. But the perspective flips when you're now on that uh, rebuilding side because now what you're trying to do is avoiding paying those guys those big money deals if you wait five years from the time they sign the contract as opposed to doing it three years after they sign the contract. And so I think it's a different perspective, like you said, Max, for a lot of Wings fans who aren't used to getting to the negotiating table as fast as possible, given how the, the basically the entry-level contracts have been handled for the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, in very different systems, but I think you can also look to baseball and how this has played out. Look at a team like, and I think these contracts that like the Atlanta Braves are getting Ronald Acuna and Ozzy Albies on are absolutely criminal, and I feel actually really horrible for the players that they're, I mean, they're millionaires, I get it, it sounds crazy, but they, they, they could be millionaires by orders of magnitude more, right? And I'm not advocating to suppress wages or anything like that. And in fact, I think sometimes holding the the entry level in, in place can sometimes actually suppress wages a little bit. But I am saying if you're a team and you're talking about whether or not you want to pay a guy six million or eight million, I think it's in everyone's best interest to accelerate that a little bit and, and the team maybe reaps a little bit of benefit 
uh, on on the long term end, and the player can uh, can buy their first house a little sooner or something like that. So I, I think there's incentive for everyone to do it, and I think uh, you know as long as you're in a position like the Red Wings are in, where you're not worried about the cap. So and, and I think more at Cider, maybe even the more obvious example, because from what he's showing early, he could be a, a really really good player. And if I'm Steve Eiserman, I would like to negotiate with that really really good player when he's like 2021 20, instead of uh, 22 23. You know, really establishing himself. Yeah, that's exactly it. Moritz Sider is another example of a, a guy that the Wings may want to entertain the strategy with. And, you know, we talked about a lot of the benefits in, in that scenario. One additional benefit I'm going to throw out there is that what it does is it almost flips the model of how you do your contract structures for a player over the course of their career. And so historically, when you think about what the Wings have tried to do, uh, they've usually slid contracts when able. And so they'll take a three-year contract and find a way to turn that into four or five years if the player is eligible for that. And then usually at that time, you either have the option of committing the big money over a long period of time, or what the Wings have become accustomed to doing is getting that bridge deal in. And so now when that player is, you know, 22, 23 and in need of that first contract, the Wings have been historically throwing two or three-year deals at those players to see the deal that Athanasiu got you know, see a deal that Mantha got, see a deal that Bertuzzi got. They're giving him these two or three year deals. And now you're taking the player to 25 or 26. And then what the Wings have historically done at that point is either they're going to make their longer term deal, their five year deal that they throw at a Thomas Tatar, um, a five year deal that they throw at Gustav Nyquist. And they're going to take them into that age of 29, 30, 31 and then at that point, that's when the Wings have been giving, you know, again, another five or six year deal because that player has already established themselves as a player in the league. But in turn, what that actually resulted in is the Wings having a lot of those 34, 35, 36 year olds on these higher cap hit deals that are harder to move on the back end. And so by actually starting the negotiation earlier, particularly with the guys that you think are going to be elite or at least very good and getting them to longer-term deals on the front side, now you can make a more conscious decision when the player is hitting that 30-31, and maybe you start bridging them on their way out of their uh, peak as opposed to giving them more term at that point because you've kind of not paid them a whole lot up front, and now you feel like you're obligated to to a certain extent, or the player at least feels obligated to get that money because they missed out on a lot when they were in those RFA years or restricted free agent years. There's also a value in just the the cost certainty that comes with it. If you can lock in a number for for four or five years and not have to worry about all your guys coming up and, and exactly what Toronto just went through, how much money they just give Matthews, Marner, Nylander. I mean, we're talking $27 million, $28 million, something like that, for just those three players in the span of one calendar year. If I'm a GM, I don't want to be in that position. I want more cost certainty than that for when I'm planning my roster to know what I'm going to be able to do, when I'm going to be able to do it, and not have the entire kind of picture of my cap sheet change in, in, in one calendar year. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's exactly it. Yep, 100%. All right, moving along a little bit from that, though. Anything else from this game really jump out at you? Anything from, from the weekend? Obviously, there's, you know, it, it feels weird to go all the way back to Thursday night in Columbus, but anything from the last time we podcasted, I guess, that uh, you really want to talk about? No, I mean, I, you know, I think one of the maybe bright spots for the Wings is I thought Jimmy Howard at least looked uh, relatively solid against Columbus. You know, I thought he, he looked okay, and I thought tonight – Against Carolina, I thought he looked real good. Had the one weird goal go in, but hopefully that's a that's a sign of, of him finding his game. I think he's only had maybe one bad period out of the last six that he's played, which is, hey, that's a major improvement for the Wings goaltending. So uh, something I'm keeping my eye on as we're moving into this next week. Yeah, and goaltending is a huge area for them right now. I think, you know, Jonathan Bernier had a couple nights where he looked really good and um, Jimmy Howard had one tonight where I thought he looked really good. So they could use a lot more consistency either way, but uh, performances like that will go quite a ways for them, especially right now when their decor is as thin as it's been uh, with all those injuries. I mean, Patrick Nemeth now back in the lineup, but then Mike Green goes on IR. Danny DeKaiser still out with no real timetable as of right now. Trevor Daly out with no real timetable as of right now. 
you're seeing a lot of minutes for guys like Alex Biega, Madison Bowie. Uh, who am I missing here? Uh, I mean, you're getting – you saw a top pairing, Dennis Tolaski and Philip Brunner. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, like – Exactly. You know, those are McElrath. not scenarios you're expecting. Yeah, Dylan McElrath is still up with the team. I mean, he's a guy, <laughs> you know, we didn't even think would factor into the Red Wings roster this year. And, hey, here he is at almost 10 games played. Uh, I think he's been pretty season. good, too. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't think he's looked out of place. Like, I, you know, okay, maybe he turns the puck over there, but it's not anything worse than any of the other guys that are up. Um, I don't no, know what this says about the rest of the core. Right, his, his defensive game has been solid. He doesn't add it almost anything offensively, but that's not what you have him up to do. And so uh, when you're as hamstrung as they are on the back end, I think Dylan McElrath bolstering your actual presence and ability to clear the net front out is, has actually been a, a, a net positive in that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I've had no issues really with his game. I think he's been essentially a neutral player for the wings on the back end. Um, you know, obviously going throwing it back to what we were just talking about, he's a guy down the road that, again, if the injuries continue to mount or the wings do move some people out and he's still up with the big team, he's a guy I would like to see subbed out for more at Cider to get those 10 games in. And, again, it doesn't have to be burning his development you know, we're not throwing him into the fire here and saying sink or swim. It's, hey, just get the 10 games to burn his ELC and then send him right back down if you want to. But um, he, that's potentially a swap I'd consider down the road. Yeah, I mean, you can play more at Cider 14 minutes a night for 10 games and just call it call it good, you know, play him. Yeah, exactly. Just get, get, get your 10 games in and then, and then yeah. move on. Although I think he, I think he'll be he'll be able to handle it. I think you're talking about February or March. It wouldn't surprise me at all if he comes up and plays, whether it's nine or ten, whichever direction the Red Wings decide to take it. It wouldn't surprise me if he looks pretty good in, in that stretch. Yeah, I mean, you know, with how good he's been so far, and you know, now he's heading back to the World Juniors. Uh, this time he's getting to play in the top uh, in the top grouping because uh, Germany was able to move up from last year, and so. We'll see. I mean, he captained that team last year as an 18-year-old in their uh, um, little play-in, and they were able to get back in, and now they're in a grouping with Canada, Russia, and the U.S. So I'm real excited to see what he looks like there. And if, I think if he has a real strong World Juniors, um, then I think at that point you're going to have to really consider getting him up to burn that entry-level contract. I'm going to suggest that to the, the World Junior B-Pool people as their official slogan. It's the little play-in. <laughs> you should do that. I don't know if they'll take very kindly to it. Uh, but, yeah, he is going back, and it's going to be really fun to watch him on that stage. I mean, it, the group that he's in is it's going to be must-watch every night, right? They're going to play Canada, Russia, and the Americans. I mean, it's not only could there be a couple of Red Wings prospects there, depending on if Robert Master Simone makes Team USA, Joe Valeno certainly will be on Team Canada, uh, but some some real firepower and is Askarov going to be there for Russia? I'll, I'll watch that. I mean, I would suspect Askarov's going to be there from Russia. I haven't seen any announcement on their uh, official roster yet for the uh, U20s, so we'll see. But I mean, hey, even Joe Valeno on Canada might get to play uh, with uh, Alexi Lafreniere as his wing just to get them used to each other, right? Yeah, they played together at the Summer Showcase, so they, and they played together on last year's team. It would not surprise me at all if that is line one for Team Canada. Uh, and so maybe Mort Sider, I mean, he'd certainly be first pair for Team Germany, so it could be quite a few minutes of uh, of that. Quentin Byfield, have any chance for Canada? You know anything about that? I suspect him to be the second-line center for Canada. I mean, I, I would be very shocked if they leave him off the roster. Lot of reasons to watch. Lot of reasons to watch. Anything else? Not now that we're on the topic, like kind of going around the globe here. I mean, this couple of Swedish prospects having decent weeks. Anything you want to talk about there? Yeah, I mean Jonathan Bergeron. So we've talked about him a number of times uh, on the show as being a potential sleeper pick to to make the wings in the next couple of years and really be an offensive dynamo, if you will. Uh, so he's over in the top Swedish league. And he got his first two goals of the season, um, including one that was a pretty nifty shot. Yeah. Uh, and so that, I mean, this guy, when he was drafted, was a lot of people were shocked that he had fallen as far as he did into the 30s where the Wings were able to nab him. Uh, I mean, he's got a wicked shot. He's got, he's a great playmaker. And, you know, his, his first season out got derailed because of the back injury. But he's starting to find his game. Um, so, you know, keep an eye on him because he's a guy that – you know, if Grand Rapids makes the playoffs and, and he's able to come over, uh, he's a guy that I would really like to to keep a closer eye on. And then uh, Elmer Soderblom, you know, we've talked about him tearing up the Swedish Junior League. 
so he actually got called up to the the big leagues as well, and he got to make his debut in the top Swedish league. He only got a handful of minutes because that's kind of how those leagues go. But excited to see if he's able to to keep up. He just had a four point night the other night in uh, when he was back in juniors, and so the guy is absolutely dominant right now. Um, and he may be another sleeper pick for the Wings. His big problem is that his team is his SHL team is way too loaded. There's just he plays for a yeah. He's not going to get minutes on that team. I mean, no, he's only they're going to have to loan three him. They, they need to yeah. loan him to the All Svenskan or something because he's he's putting up like two points per game in, in that league. It's just not fair to anybody, you know, for his development for whatever. Like I'm sure he enjoys the the clout or whatever, but it's probably time to get him a little bit more of a challenge. And then obviously Bergen playing for Hleftia, it's a pretty uh, good team. And I, I think that, you know, I, I don't know if they're like top tier right now in the SHL, but um, they could have a little bit longer season that could limit his ability to come over to Grand Rapids. But, you know, you look at the gains that he's made and obviously he had that back injury that cost him pretty much all of last year. He ended up getting 16 games last season. He had three points in the SHL. He's a smaller player, pretty young for his class, so that wasn't you know necessarily shocking. It probably wasn't quite as good as Red Wings would have hoped for. Uh, but he's you know he's a he's a young 19. He won't turn 20 until July, uh, and he has tripled his production this year. You know he's played 19 games. He's got nine points, so maybe slightly under tripled, but um, definitely the progress that you would like to see out of out of Berggren. And I think. Um, a lot still has to go right. I mean, he's but he's he's very smart player, really good vision, and uh, someone who I I think if he makes the NHL will will play in a pretty good role, and I, I'd I'd give him decent odds to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think he's a guy to keep your eye on in the next one to two years. If you're wondering where the, where else the Wings are going to infuse some young talent, or where's that going to come from? He's kind of the forward that I'm keeping my eye on, and then the defenseman who we may also see suit up for Team Canada now that he's uh, now that he's back and playing is Jared McIsaac. Um, so he's a real smooth skating defenseman. He should uh, likely suit up for Team Canada as well in the uh, World Junior Championships. And so we'll see how he looks coming back. But those are the two guys that I'd keep my eye on that right now are a little bit more off the radar uh, of the immediate wing system, but these are a couple of guys who could add a lot to this team. McIsaac's got some heavy hitting to him too. I mean, I think Detroit fans are going to like him whenever they, whenever they finally get to see him. It seems like he gets hurt every summer. Yeah. I mean, it looks like he's finally back and he's cleared from the shoulder injury. And, you know, last season it felt like he played through a lot of that injury and still put up a fantastic number. So let's see what he can do when he's fully healthy. Absolutely. And obviously the wing's still trying to get fully healthy to uh, Adam Ernie. Still not in, but I don't think that sounds like it'll be long term. And then obviously the the big wait for news on Anthony Mantha. Um, but maybe a little bit more uh, big picture. We should probably talk about Dylan Larkin hasn't scored a whole lot recently. I mean, I think he's got zero points in the last five games. Uh, you could maybe attribute some of that to Mantha being out lately, and, and the top line in general not looking quite as dominant with Robbie Fabry on that right wing instead of Mantha. But uh, are you concerned at all about Larkin? Do you think he's he's looked worse? Is this a product of just the team's been so bad that uh, people are starting to, to look everywhere to point fingers? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of of both. Like I think you could certainly make the argument that has Dylan Larkin lit up the score sheet. Well, no, he's got zero points in the last five games, but. You know, to me, that's not from a lack of trying or effort um, in any stretch of the imagination. I mean, the guy is still, he's still north of 50% in terms of expected goals for percentage. And that is notable when the Wings' last three games have been 35, 40, and 34%. So for the guy to still be on the right side of 50 in his last five games, when you have three of those as those games, that's impressive. But I mean, even beyond that, you know, setting aside the game against Carolina tonight where nobody looked particularly good. He had six shots against New Jersey. He had five against um, Columbus. He had eight against Ottawa, four against San Jose. Um, he's still, you know, generating, you know, anywhere from 0.2 to 0.5 expected goals for per game. I think it's just a matter of the puck's not going in the net for him. And, you know, without Mantha on that top line for most of that New Jersey game and for the game against Carolina, he is missing a big finishing threat. Like we just uh, talked about a few minutes ago, Mantha has arguably been one of the top three wingers in the entirety of the NHL this year. Um, so when you take that off the line, yeah, it's that much harder to produce on the score sheet. So he's dealt with that for the last two games. But, 
he's still he's still got the motor, he's still driving, he's still generating chances, and he's still winning the on ice battle when he's there. So I'm not particularly concerned. I think if it stretches into ten or fifteen games, and you know we're still seeing that scoring production lacking, then then I think we can have a different conversation because he's going to need to shoulder more of that scoring load if Mantha is out long term. You know what's interesting? I wonder how much of this is about the Red Wings playing a lot less overtime so far this year than they did last year. I I would put Larkin in the top. I don't know. You don't see every team, but he's got to be top 10 three-on-three players in the league with everything he does, with his speed, with his defense. He's somebody who you think three-on-three is is a go-to, and, and that's been borne out. I mean, he's he's an awesome scorer in overtime. I think, you know, he had the game against San Jose where he – was it San Jose or was it L.A. that he got the – I think it was San Jose. He had the breakaway yeah. in overtime, and he, he deked out the goal and, the, you know, missed the net, and – um, things like that. I think he had a play to Athens CU in that same game where it would have been a, a, a game-winning assist. And I think so. maybe some of that can play. But when you look at the numbers, really, with Larkin, he's been better in basically every way than he was last season or is on pace to be uh, in everything except for on the power play offensively. I think his, his even-strength defense, he's already accrued more goals above replacement on defense than he did in all of last season in a third the games. He's getting close to where he was at at even-strength offense in a third the games, and that's a counting stat. So you figure um, it's not like it's like an average. Like He's, he's going up. Um, the only real place he's taken a hugely noticeable drop-off is in the power play. And I think that you know is his most... His closest comparison this year is Patrice Bergeron, and and the big difference is that Larkin's defense has been better than Patrice Bergeron, and his power play offense has been a lot worse. The Red Wings' power play is really bad, and I think Larkin is a part of that, and it's also hurting him. It's it's it goes both ways. He needs to be better on the power play, no doubt. He's also not getting any power play points because the whole power play is really bad. And to me, I think you can pretty much draw a line between Dylan Larkin's drop-off in production and and the, and the power play's uh, general badness. I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> I mean, I think that's exactly it. Uh, you know, it's important to – we can't overstate how bad the power play has been and how much of a factor that is. For a lot of the guys that are scoring um, in the top 10, top 15 in the league, you look at those power plays that they're on and they're getting – you know, a, a large chunk of points from power play, you know, goals that are scored. And you look at the Wings power play, and the Wings power play doesn't generate really much of anything. And so when they aren't scoring like that, they're not going to get a lot of those uh, extra points to inflate their totals. But I think, Max, your point is spot on about it's not just about the offense here. What Dylan Larkin is bringing to the rest of the game is what I think people have a harder time identifying just because it's not tangible. You can't say that, oh, yep, that's a goal prevented. That's a goal prevented on, you know, potentially a good stick check or a good positioning play. And so it's a little bit harder to pick that up. But I think, you know, your point is well made that across the board defensively, this is the best we've ever seen Dylan Larkin look. And yeah, while, you know, we're not, we're not getting to see him go end to end. Part of that being we're not getting a lot of three on three overtime. And he's not really breaking out um, and leaking out of the defensive zone to generate those chances. It's at, the the reason is because his defense is really taking it to the next level. You know, you can make an argument that he belongs in the Selkie conversation. That's how good he's been this year. So uh, I also think, I think one he, reason that 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 gets lost is because we talk about defense and. That doesn't have to be in the D zone, right? Like, I think Dylan Larkin, in a strange way, some of his defensive ability comes with just how well he forechecks when he's in the O zone, when he doesn't have the puck. Like, you're on offense, that's absolutely true, but one of the best ways to defend is to never let the t- other team uh, in your zone, and he's so good at going up into a corner and, and knocking a puck loose, and no, he probably doesn't turn it into a scoring chance as much as you would like. Uh, but more often than not, that line is able to, to keep pucks in, in, in the opposing team's end. And that's how you see things like, oh, they shut down the, the McDavid dry side of line. Oh, they kept the, the, the Bergeron Pasternak line pretty quiet. That, that's how that happens. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. If you throw it back, I mean, Wings fans should know this. You know, why were the 2007, 2008, 2009 Wings teams so dominant? Well, Datsuk and Zetterberg always had the puck. Yeah, you, you, you saw the flash and the flare of Datsuk with the takeaways, and that's why that's honestly how he became to be known as such a great defensive player is the way he would pick people's pockets. But it, it actually took a lot longer 
for Henrik Zetterberg to get similar recognition because he wasn't as flashy. But the reason those guys were so always looked so good defensively is they always had the puck or they always had the puck in the offensive zone. You weren't ever breaking out of the offensive zone cleanly against them. And so I think there's a little bit of that with Mantha and Larkin and Bertuzzi, the way that line forechecks, they forecheck so, so well that teams just don't break out. Um, Either they don't break out at all, or if they do break out, it's not clean and it doesn't result in an advantageous position. And it's a position that the Wings are able to basically absorb and then, you know, turn it back the other way. And so it's a lot harder to pick up, but the numbers are there. Dylan Larkin's defense is towards the top of the league. So even though the points aren't there, the guy is still affecting the outcome in a positive way. And we're not here to cape for the guy, right? Like he said in the preseason, he wants to take over games and, you know, go ahead, Dylan's like, it's time to take over games. But to say that he's been bad or even part of the problem, I, I don't, I don't see it. And, I, and the numbers don't say it. So to me, it's like, has he been the, the takeover a game and win it for you guy? Not yet. And, you know, if he wants to challenge himself to do that, the opportunity is, is here right now. They're going to need him to. Without Anthony Mantha, they need Dylan Larkin to step up now more than they ever have, I think, in his career so far. But I also think that to, to put that much pressure on him and, you know, he asked for it, so it's fine, but, um, he's already been their best player when you, when you consider the whole ice. Mantha's been the best offensive player, but by goals above replacement, it's not even close. And, and to my eye, I think even even without the numbers, I still think when you factor in everything that he does for that team, uh, I still have a hard time seeing anyone else has been better than him this year. Yeah, I think that's that's a very fair point. And so I think patience is all people need to to have here. It's certainly frustrating when you see the team you know, get blown out again against New Jersey or fail to even put the puck in the net against Carolina, who's got James Reimer on there on the second night of a back-to-back. You know, it's frustrating, but I think a little bit of patience here. Just recognize that there's a lot he's still bringing to this team, and he's still the engine that makes his team go. Yep, absolutely. You ready to go to the questions? Let's do it. All right, uh, so our first question. Oh, shoot, I didn't write down who any of these are from. I'm sorry in advance. I didn't write down who any of these are from, so if it's your question, uh, I owe you a shout-out. Uh, first question is, how do you see the Red Wings down the middle next year? I know it's hard to say, but best guess. Seems like the best case would be Valeno or Rasmussen taking a spot with Philpola as 3C and Glennie as 4C. Uh, Prashanth, do you want to weigh in on that one? Yeah, you know, the part that's missing in this question is, what are you doing with Franz Nielsen? Because he's still going to be a part of this team in all likelihood. Um, you know, if you look at the contracts that the Wings have on the books for next season, they only have a handful of forwards that are really under the uh, under a contract. It's Dylan Larkin, Franz Nielsen, Darren Helm, Philpola, and Glendening. And then you go, oh, wait, all five of those guys are centers. Um, so it, it, it sucks, but in all likelihood, you're going to probably roll the same center lineup out that you are this season simply because those are the only guys you got under contract. And, you know, I haven't necessarily been blown away by Valeno. Rasmussen has looked good when he's been healthy, but the problem is he's he's been very in and out of the lineup with either potentially a wrist flare-up, now potentially something lower body. Um, it's been tough to get a good gauge on him, but when he's been in the lineup, he certainly looked good. I just don't know that there's a spot there unless you either ship Philpola out, which at $3 million next year may be doable, um, or you find a way to move Franz Nielsen, which I just don't think is going to happen. Or you part with kind of Blaschel's favorite and kind of a team favorite in Luke Glendening. And again, I don't see that happening. Can those guys get shifted to the wings? Sure. We've seen Glendening on the wing this year. We've seen Helm on the wing. Uh, we've even seen Nielsen and Philpolo playing on the same line together. But I don't know that that's going to happen um, given the other restricted free agents that need to be signed. My bet, if Rasmussen can get healthy and and keep up what he was doing in the first half, is my bet is they would drop... Philpolo would be the second center, Rasmussen would be the third center, and Nielsen would be the fourth line center with Glendening flexing out to the wing on probably the Rasmussen line, but maybe, you know, maybe the fourth. But I'm guessing on the Rasmussen line. Uh, that's my best guess because I think that Glendening can do – he can play both pretty easily, and I, I think maybe a little bit easier than someone like a Nielsen could. And, and as a four-checker, him and – 
a Rasmussen Glendening pairing, I think would work. But you know, those lines are going to change too. It's just kind of a that's that's one way I could see it working. I think Rasmussen, if he plays how he played when he, how he's played when he's been in the lineup and he can stay in the lineup, uh, I think he'll be on the team. You know, from the start of next year, uh, Valeno maybe start in Grand Rapids and then you know, kind of similar situation how Zadina's in this year. We'll see how long he stays up, but um, kind of be in Grand Rapids with the you know right there on the cusp. And I think that. Um, Zadina has moved into that, you know, right there on the cusp territory where I don't necessarily think he was there uh, at, at the time the roster decisions were made in October. So that's progress from him. I think you'll continue to see progress from Valeno, uh, much like last year for Zadina, and then it'll. I think it'll he'll probably become just one year behind whatever Zadina's doing. Is it's kind of how I'm treating it. But you never know. Valeno's a really you know hard worker. He could accelerate his own timeline. But but you're talking about the center clog. I think that's how it would work. And then obviously Philpo will be up after next year and then you know Rasmussen maybe moves up one or something like that so or Valeno slots in on, on the second line or something or you know if uh <laughs> if everything breaks the Red Wings way you get Quentin Byfield on the second line so uh that is the the ultimate wild card there so that's how I that's how I would uh complete shot in the dark but um that's my guess Max, you just stole my thunder. I was about to say, well, actually, <laughs> if I'm going to reimagine this, you know, Quentin Byfield is the wing's second-line center right behind Dylan Larkin. But, you know, we'll see. Fingers crossed if that 2020 draft lottery works out that way. But, yeah, I think everything you said is spot on. I think Valeno, it's important for fans to kind of reset their, their timeline. You know, he had an excellent season last year, but it's important to remember that that was his fourth year uh, in the CHL, he had exemption status when he entered the league. So, you know, he's really a man amongst boys kind of dominating that that league to a certain extent. So I think it's important to reset it as he moves up a, a significant tier into the AHL that maybe next year or even the year after might not be unreasonable for him to break into the NHL. Yep, I think that's perfectly fair. All right, next question, and again, I forgot the names. Something I've been thinking about lately. Are Mantha, Athanasiu, and Bertuzzi too old to be part of the Wings' future core? If we assume Zadina, Valeno, Sider, Rasmussen are two years away, minimum, from becoming core-slash-impact players, that would put the three players I mentioned, Mantha, Athanasiu, Bertuzzi, all at 27. So, Prashanth... Uh, I don't know how old you are, and so this may offend you when I ask it, but is 27 too old to be part of the Red Wings core? Uh, well, let's see. I'm 29, so I'm going to say that that's not too old. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think this is a fascinating question, and this is honestly what I've hinted at to a certain degree with these polls about should you trade X player, should you trade Y player. Um, a lot of it is getting at where do we think – this team is where do I think this team is and how far away do you think they are from being competitive um, so I think a natural place to start when answering this question is aging curves and so a lot of people notice that with the forward aging curves whether you're looking at evolving wilds you're looking at money pucks you're looking at uh, the one that was just done by CJ Turturro for the most part you see the peak um, of a forward tends to occur somewhere between the age of 22 and 25. Um, most people will probably peg it down in 23 or 24, but I have seen it range from 22 to 25. So to, depending on that estimate, you're saying, all right, well, this is the peak forward performance. And now we're saying, okay, Anthony Mantha is 25. And we're saying that Andreas Athanasiu is 25. And we're saying that uh, Dylan Larkin is 23 and Philip Ronick is uh, 22. So at that point, if we're talking about aging curves, those guys are squarely at what we would consider the peak. And so a lot of people lose sight of this, but I think the important thing to note is from that peak to about the age of 30 to 31, NHL players tend to preserve about 90% of their peak performance. So when you're looking at the decay from that peak to the age of about 30, 31, even 32, you're really only seeing about a 10% drop off from that peak. And so if this is the peak for Larkin and for Mantha, I think these are elite peaks. And if you're even dropping 10% from that over the next six to seven years, then yeah, I still think they're a legitimate part and a core piece um, of the Wings' future. Athanasiu is different. And the reason why I've probed this uh, concept of should you trade him, should you not, should you entertain the idea is because of while he's an excellent scorer, he hasn't 
have those same on-ice impacts. He doesn't tend to drive overall play in his team's favor like the other two, um, even when accounting for quality of teammates, quality of competition, and other contextual factors. So, you know, in that sense, if this is his peak and you're expecting a 10% drop-off, is he a core piece? And I think that's where the conversation becomes a little bit more entertaining. But um, all that being said, I think it's important to recognize about six to seven years from now, you should still expect Mantha and Larkin to be roughly within 10 to 15% of what you're seeing at this point in time. And therefore I consider those guys core pieces. Yeah. And there's probably a good philosophical discussion to be had about, you know, does a core, how close in age does one core really need to be? I mean, we, we do always kind of reference the building for a window and, and it's great to have your stars all in their prime while you're in that window. But the reality is with the nature of drafts and all that stuff, you're not going to be able to get all of your core, whatever that necessarily means. Uh, in one exact, you know, kind of eight, along the same aging curve line. I mean, I think Mantha's aging curve maybe was a little slower. Like he's, he's hitting his peak right now. I think he's 25 and maybe he carries that a little bit longer. Like someone like Blake Wheeler kind of has, uh, but you know, it's even sticking with Winnipeg. I think, you know, Winnipeg's best player right now. Mark Shifley's 26. Patrick Liney's 21. Nick Ehlers and Kyle Connor are 23. Josh Morrissey's 24. You're not going to have all these guys at the same age. And so I think that, um, as a as a unit, like you can talk about th- those guys are the core players of the Red Wings. But when you're talking about like their championship core, you know, I, it's going to stretch from kind of multiple. I don't know. It seems a little too glib to call them different eras because they're so close together. But you know what I mean? Like kind of different uh, age, like windows or whatever. I don't know what the, what they're clusters, age clusters. Yeah, gonna, I mean, I they're going to come from age clusters. Way. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a reasonable way to put it. And every championship team is built this way. You look at when the Bruins won the Stanley Cup, you have the Zdeno Chara piece of it, and he's the elder statesman of that team. And then you have the newer pieces in Bergeron and Marchand when you're talking about the 2010 uh, championship for, for Boston. If you look at even the 07-08 wings when they're winning, you know, Datsuk's 29 on that team, and Zetterberg's 27, and those guys are really the drivers. But you've got Lindstrom at 37, You've got Rafalski at 34, and then you've got on the other end of the spectrum, you actually have Fopola and Hoodler who are there at 23 and 24. So you have a lot of those age clusters. Like, yes, Nick Lidstrom was the, you know, the driver on the defense group for that team, but the real core forward pieces are 29 and 27, and then you've got the sprinkling of youth. And so if you're thinking about this from Detroit's standpoint, could you do it with Larkin and Mantha, you know, with Mantha being 29 and Larkin being 27, and having the sprinkling of youth of Zadina, uh, Valeno, potentially whoever you're picking this year, whether it's Byfield, Lafreniere, Rossi, Perfetti, any of those guys. Yeah, and then you have Sider and Roenick on the back end. And so now I think you are talking about a lot of a similar, you know, age cluster type groupings here where it can still work so long as the elite level talent is still there at some point. Yeah, and, and, you know, I I know that, you know, Danny DeKaiser's, contract for so long had felt like an albatross but let's say that you know Danny DeKaiser at age like 31 32 is still a a top four piece for you or whatever when you're in the playoffs I think that's fine to have too a little bit more veteran stewardship kind of thing so um, I don't think you should get too bogged down is what I'm saying in in having all of your quote-unquote core be in the same age window it's actually probably healthy to have them in different ones because as as one or two players moves out of those prime years you should have one or two more prospects coming in and and ideally if if you're a really well-run team you're just going to cycle like that for years and years yeah that's the goal and that's the dream and so i i don't know that i would be super concerned with uh 27 uh for being the ages of larkin and mantha in a couple of years but I will say I'm I'm 24, so if 27 is the cutoff for old, uh, I'm gonna live it up for the next three years. Yeah, you got three years to do it, Max. All right, then I'm start getting grace. I probably will be bald by 27 though. Um, <laughs> last question is: Will Blashill ever stop blending the lines? I'm <laughs> a little bit editorializing. Please explain some of the possible logic of the line blending beyond spreading the talent and hoping for the best, and for kicks, maybe offer some of the drawbacks. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, everyone's fascinated uh, by the Blaschel line blender, if you will. Um, you know, everyone is basically suggesting that this is detrimental to players um, and that potentially it's uh, problematic uh, in terms of being able to build chemistry, things of that nature. 
I don't personally have that big of an issue with it. Um, you know, if, if I'm looking at it, yeah, there's certain pieces in chemistry that, that works together, but the, at the end of the day, the issue for Detroit is they simply do not have enough talent right now to stick with certain combinations as much as they may seem to work. Because what you're basically committing yourself to is, fine, only one-fourth of the time am I going to have this combination on the ice and, you know, you can certainly play it up a certain, a little bit more ice time for one line compared to another. But at the end of the day, you're you're not giving yourself the opportunity to put your best players on the ice as much as possible, um, given that I don't necessarily think their success is always tied together. And actually, this is an interesting question. And for anyone who's curious about this whole line juggling thing, um, Tyler Dello, who now is uh, with the New Jersey Devils, but previously wrote for The Athletic, um, back in 2017, he actually wrote an article talk, uh, that was titled, Is Your Favorite Team Coached by a Line Juggler? Um, and he actually investigated every head coach back in 2017. Um, and actually his article started because somebody asked him, Is Jeff Blaschel a line juggler? Um, his answer was yes, but it's not substantially more than the rest of the league. And so, I don't, I think we get frustrated by it. Uh, we being, you know, myself and then a, a number of fans that are going to mention this too. But I would say that the deviation between him and the coach that's 15th, um, isn't that high. So like, I don't know that he's doing it to such an extreme that, uh, relative to the rest of the NHL that it's causing a problem. Yeah. Let me like ask you a, kind of a few rhetoricals. Like, I, I don't know. I guess it's not rhetorical if I'm telling you to answer. Do you think there's ever a good reason to change lines? Yeah. I mean, I think there's always a good reason to change lines. Do you think that – I mean, okay, I guess – to me it's like if there's ever a good reason to change lines, then the, the juggling isn't really the problem, right? Like your, your, it's, your issue would be with kind of the judgment of – are they doing it at the right times? And in my experience, the big issue people have uh, are just the lines themselves. Like, no one's going to be mad if the Red Wings start off with a line of uh, Larkin, Abdulkader, and Hiroshi, and then three minutes in, juggle it to Larkin, Mantha, Bertuzzi. Like, then they'll be happy because they got the line they wanted. So, to me, the problem people have is really a lot less with the, the quote-unquote blending as it is with the lines themselves. You know, I think... I do think there's value in letting lines stay together and have chemistry, but there's also a point where uh, if no one's done anything for a period or two periods, then why wouldn't you shake it up? You know, why wouldn't you try try a new look in, in hopes of uh, something finding something somewhere else? So I don't have any problem with that. I think there's plenty of good reasons to change lines uh, in games, in seasons, all that stuff. But I think that what is a fair criticism is, you know, of lines in general, and that's going to be eternal. It's like the, the the batting order in baseball or something like that. Like it's people are always going to have an idea of how to make it a little bit better. I think, I think you and I probably could each come up with a way that tonight's lines could have been better. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly it. Um, when I'm looking at it, it could be, there's a number of reasons to juggle lines and you hit on a handful of them. You know, sometimes you're ducking a matchup. Sometimes yep. you're, just trying to get extra shifts for your star players. Um, sometimes you are looking to get another guy going. Um, and for the wings right now, there's not so much talent that you can get away with concentrating the elite talent on a single line. Um, and I always flash back to uh, the wings in the early part of this decade when they were kind of falling out of their elite, elite status and that's the moment when Mike Babcock split up Datsuk and Zetterberg. And this was a kind of a big, big issue for Wings fans. But what he would always do is whenever he needed a goal in crunch time, he would put the two of those guys back together. But otherwise, his whole philosophy was, I'm going to spread my elite talent throughout the lineup to give me the most opportunities to have one of those guys on the ice. And that's always resonated with me. There's a great piece that kind of talks about this in more of a statistical standpoint by Alex Novet on Hockey Graphs talking about strong link versus weak link hockey. And essentially hockey's a game where having more more minutes with your elite talent on the ice bodes better for you, which is intuitive. 
um, compared to having kind of fewer minutes or kind of concentrating a little bit more. So all that being said, I am totally okay with juggling it whatsoever because I'm not so sold on the idea of chemistry, unless you're the Sedin twins or Datsuk and Zetterberg, of being so overwhelmingly beneficial that you have to leave that line together. Yeah, and a good way to take the emotion out of it is to just talk about it with someone else's team, right? Like if if, if uh, the person who asks this question is obviously a Red Wings fan, but if I pose the question back to him of like, all right, so you're you're the Boston coach and you've got the the Pasternak Bergeron Marchand line. I agree that I'm keeping that line together as much as possible. And then what do I do when I walk into Detroit and I'm I have them going up against the Larkin line all night? Well, uh, I'm going to start taking shifts here and there where I put Pasternak on Krejci's wing or I put Bergeron with Charlie Coyle or something like that. You know what I mean? Just to try and get different looks so that, you know, Larkin can't be shadowing my best line all night, right? That's one reason. Another reason, uh, let's say that you are the Colorado Avalanche coach and you have, or let's not do another one line team. Let's do like, you're like the Vegas coach and you've got a few pretty good lines and then you're like, oh, well, uh, it hasn't really worked, so let's. St- it's we're down two to one late, and uh, okay, let's stack Stone with Marchessault and Carlson, and just get all of our super studs because they're gonna have the puck all game because Stone and Carlson uh, are two of the best defensive forwards in the league, and we're gonna know they're gonna have the puck, and then hopefully Marchessault can finish one when, when they get it to him or something. There's all kinds of good reasons to shake things up during a game that I think are a lot easier to understand when you don't have the emotional charge of of it being your team or your players or stuff like that. And so I guess I would just kind of encourage people to look at it that way and, and try to think about it from uh, as, as a – as as less of like a fan interested party and as much of like a okay tactically can I see why this makes sense because I really don't think people have a problem with with the quote unquote blending I just think they don't like the lines and I don't know how many uh line combinations there are right now that would make people extremely happy in Detroit Yeah I mean I I don't know that there's really any optimal combination of lines that is going to put this team marginally better or markedly I should say markedly better than where they're at right now. And so that's why I don't really have any issue with, with the blending of lines. I know a lot of people will tout the Blashell line juggler and, and this and that, but you know, at the end of the day, there's, there's just simply not enough talent on this team and, and even having optimal lines, you can leave them as long as you want. I don't buy this, this notion that the chemistry between certain players is going to over and above put this team somewhere else, um, or in a better place. Yeah, and I think it, it comes up a lot with young players. So something like Zadina comes up tonight. Um, I think people want to see him with with you know Larkin, or they want to see him with Athanasiu or something. And I I understand that, but I think that um, in good time it'll happen. And I, I so I, I don't I didn't actually see much blending tonight. I thought it was an interesting timing for the question, but uh, yeah, I you know I I get the frustration. I really do. I, I understand the the want to see your your guys with each other and, and the need to kind of have, you know, consistently when when a line like the Fabry, Phil Plath, or the CU line has some has some mojo working um, and then they get split up. So I, I, I get that, but I also think, you know, putting Zadina with Phil Plath seemed to be about the only one-two combo that worked for the Red Wings tonight other than Larkin Bertuzzi. Yeah, exactly. And so, again, I think it gives an opportunity for other players to to get going when you're able to spread that talent out a little bit. I think that's all for the questions. It'll be, uh, I guess it actually will be a fairly busy week, even with the holiday. Red Wings don't play again until Wednesday against Toronto. Then they got Philly on Friday and then a home game against the Capitals. So no easy wins this week. Uh, not that there have been easy wins for the Red Wings at all this year, but, uh, any, any thoughts on the week at large or, or what you, what you think of Sheldon Keefe, Toronto Maple Leafs. That's right. Yeah. How about that? After our last episode, I asked Prashant if Mike Babcock would still be the coach of the Leafs when the Leafs came to Detroit, to which I answered my own question saying no, and then the next day he got fired. So Max, you called it then? No, wait, I said the opposite. No, I said he would still be the coach. And I Yo, got you said he would wrong. still be the coach. That's right. And I said he would get three games and then he was fired the next day. So That's right. Uh, you were closer than me. <laughs> I I'll take I'll pat myself on the back for that one. But yeah, fascinating. We will see. Um a new look Leafs team, I think, that night. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. It will be a lot of, a lot of intrigue. I mean, I think, you know, going to Philly the day after Thanksgiving, there's, you know, there's plenty to watch there. Couturier, uh, going head to head with Larkin is two of the more, more fun 200 foot players in the league. And then obviously, uh, Ovi from the Ovi spot will we'll draw all eyes on Saturday.
Yeah. I mean, like I mentioned at the end of the last podcast when we were talking about the week, the Wings had to get wins against Columbus and New Jersey because it wasn't going to get easy with Carolina, Toronto, Philly, um, Washington on the docket. Well, they didn't get wins against Columbus or New Jersey, didn't get a point, um, and then got shut out against Carolina. And so this might be a rough week. Um, but thankfully it's Thanksgiving and so, or American Thanksgiving for those up in Canada. And so hopefully everyone has an enjoyable Thanksgiving and maybe the turkey will help you forget some of the games. Yeah. Those up in Canada, if, if you're feeling blue come Wednesday night or Thursday morning, just drive right down, come over to my house. I'll, I'll, I'll feed you some mashed potatoes and turkey and we'll, we'll call it good. Yeah. So everyone pile in, go into Max's house. <laughs> Make sure you you know you save enough room for seconds and thirds. He's gonna feed you all. That's right. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, though, for real to everyone, and I hope, hope it's a great week. If you uh, if you want to support the show, you can subscribe to the Athletic and get all of our midweek episodes at theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast. Also, if you're a really savvy customer, I hear we might have a pretty good Black Friday special coming, uh, but you didn't hear it from me. Uh, that's gonna do it all for us uh, today on Wings for Breakfast, and we will talk to you again in the middle of the week. <laughs>